Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are the hosts of today's show. We are speaking with Dr. Simone Pagan-Grizo of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Simone is a physicist who is searching for the Higgs boson, which has also been called the God particle because it is the theoretical establisher of mass in the standard model of physics. This recording has been pre-recorded and edited. Simone, can you please tell us a little bit about what you do? As an experimental uh, physicist, I basically work on understanding fundamental laws of nature in the smallest scale as possible and to understand which are the fundamental constituents of matter and which laws govern these, uh, the forces between them. And uh, currently I work on an experiment which is uh, in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, um, in the CERN laboratory. And this experiment is called ATLAS. And uh, one of its purposes is actually to uh, smash protons uh, together to uh, investigate the nature of the fundamental constituents of uh, the matter that we see around. Including to find the Higgs boson. This mechanism, although almost widely accepted, has never been proved experimentally. So it's really just a theory at this point? Yes. Very well motivated, but just a theory. And in doing this mechanism, what happens is that you introduce one more piece in this theory. We call them fields. And this field basically breaks down and gives mass to these force carriers. But in doing this thing, one single piece remains left, okay? And uh, this small piece is supposed, is what we are looking for, is what is called the Higgs boson. So if we see this, this Higgs boson, will be a very, very good indication that this mechanism is actually the one the network have chosen and make things work as we see. We have some indications or how it should behave and which are the property of this particle. In particular, the, the key characteristic of this particle is its mass. We don't know, in, in this theory, its mass is a free parameter, if you want. We don't know what, what mass it should have. It could span in different ranges. However, we have both experimental constraints and uh, theoretical motivation to think that its mass is in a well-defined range. And this is the best way we, we can account for what we see in the end. This was initially a quite wide range. It was initially searched at CERN in an experiment which was colliding electrons and anti-electrons. It was searched up to year 2000 and increasing the energy because it was not found and pushing it harder and harder. And what does increasing the energy do? 
increase that's a very good question the point is that in the end energy and mass uh, as back as Einstein teaches us are basically the same thing so colliding um, in electron and anti-electron at higher energy we can create particles with higher masses basically and the idea was try to create to collide at higher energy because we didn't found any trace of the production of the Higgs at a given energy, so it must it it, mean, it meant that it was at higher masses that we couldn't reach. So increasing the energy was the way to produce in a laboratory this particle. After the year 2000, where this this uh, particle was not found, the collider was shut down because uh, a new collider was under a project to be built, which is the Large Hadron Collider that is now operating. And the search passed uh, to another laboratory, which is located uh, uh, near Chicago, the Fermilab. That was still uh, a machine which was basically colliding particles to, to create in laboratory heavy particles that usually in nature are not easy to find. This was a little different particle, was not colliding electrons, was colliding protons and antiprotons, so constituents of the atoms. This was done because in this way we could achieve higher energies in the collision. And uh, the reason for that is just the proton mass is higher than the electron one. To collide this particle, we need to accelerate them. And to accelerate them, we use circular rings. So we need to bend them and accelerate them. But if they travel too fast, you, you don't have enough bending power to, to keep them in the ring, right? So you need bigger and bigger rings. Now, with the protons, you could, with a relatively visible ring, which is around uh, six kilometers in circumference, you could actually increase the energy by a lot. Can you please walk us through what the standard model is? It basically has its really nice thing is that with one equation, we can describe how all the matters that we see around behaves, uh, interact with uh, other matters, with all these forces, at certain they sell T-shirts with this equation, okay, written down on the T-shirt in a very compact form. And from there, in principle, you, you can know whatever happens, how matters interact in whatever different situation. It turns out that it, we cannot solve that equation. And if one can do it, it will get uh, its price right away, and a Nobel Prize too, probably. But we can try to find approximate solutions of that. And another nice thing of the standard model is that the only thing you need to do to build a standard model is to write down in these equations the content of matter that you see around. So I say, I just say, I want to that there is an electron. It doesn't tell me because why there is an electron, but I say, I want to be an electron, I'm muon and tau, I want to be quarks, okay? But I don't specify that electrons can interact through light with other particles, uh, or I don't specify any force. I just write down the, the content of matters. And then just applying, just requiring that these equations are the same for uh, some symmetries for different observers or around. The easy example of like, I want the equation to be the same if I'm here or if I'm in the other room. Okay, so there are other symmetries that we can impose to this equation. And just imposing these this symmetries, it turns out that this equation itself does not satisfy these symmetries. And the only way to satisfy these symmetries that are pretty simple is that there are forces between these things that you've put in the theory. 
So it must be the electromagnetism. It must be there, otherwise the theory wouldn't be symmetric in this transformation. This is one not one really nice thing. We didn't in this theory we didn't put by hand the forces that the for, all the forces that we see in nature. They come out just requiring a symmetry of this equation, pretty natural symmetries. And it comes out that if you do that, so it must exist all the forces that we see. So this is one of the very beautiful things uh, of the standard model, why we believe so much in this theory and why I, it worked so well. Many predictions of the standard model were actually get, did uh, from a theoretical point of view and then confirmed experimentally. And did this also uh, got Nobel Prize. Can uh, you give some examples? Yeah, the WNC bosons are one of beautiful examples. We saw there was there were theories trying to explain the radioactive decays and why they happen, how did they happen. But they had several problems. The standard model kind of unified all these treatments and uh, offered an explanation. But in order to that, he had to introduce these force carriers, the WNC bosons, which were as the photons bring light and bring electromagnetic force between uh, two charged particles. These WNC bosons can mediate this weak force uh, between particles and can give rise to decays, radioactive decays. In order to do that, they need to be to act in a very short range. And to do that, the WNC bosons need to have a, a, a mass on the contrast of the photon, which is massless, and that's why it can travel uh, as much as it wants. There was a kind of uh, breaking ground prediction and uh, turns out that from uh, lower energy experiments which couldn't achieve that mass they could anyway measure other things which made a very precise prediction of what uh, the mass of the WNC bosons would have been. It's still at CERN they actually built an experiment to look for this particle at this given energy and they found it and that was a Nobel Prize directly. And yeah, that, that was a beautiful example of how theory can go ahead experiments. And and you have example on the other hand, when, for example, in dark matter, the experiments found evidence of dark matter, while no theoretical model was really seriously considering it as a possibility. And we still don't know exactly what it is, right? So it's a very nice interplay between theoretical and experimental physicists in uh, in advancing the knowledge in this field. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX. This week we are talking to Simone Pagan-Grizo about the search for the Higgs boson. Right now we know that the Higgs particle must have a mass which is above 114 times the mass of the proton, and this bound comes from the lab experiment. We know that also it's not in between uh, what is kind of 155 to 180 times, 70 times the mass of the protons. We think that it's unlikely to be heavier than that because can measure other quantities which can depend on the Higgs mass without directly producing it. This is kind of amazing. This is a pure quantum mechanical phenomenon so that even if you don't produce actually a particle, that can influence other phenomena. Depending on the mass, the analysis techniques to adopt uh, are different because the, the, 
properties of the particle change. How much statistical certainty do you need before you can exclude a mass range or say, hey, we, uh, we found the Higgs boson? Yeah, that's a good question. In the end, we'll count the number of uh, collisions which behaves in our detector as we think the Higgs should, but we have other processes that are known and behaves in a similar way. For claiming a discovery of the Higgs boson, we basically uh, ask that the probability to be uh, less than uh, 10 to the minus 7. So that means that even repeating, if, if we repeat the experiment 10 million times, only one of these times it, it would happen that the known processes will give rise to the number of events to explain what we see. We are getting very close in, in starting refining, having enough data collected and enough knowledge of the data that we collect to be able to see if among the, all the collisions that we record, the Higgs boson is produced or not. And how much data are we talking about here? Yeah, so the data in a, at the larger collider, we have 20 million collisions per second. However, in every collision of two protons, it doesn't always happen the same thing. Different things can happen. And what we look for is the result of this collision. We have this theory, the standard model, which not only unifies in all these forces, but gives really a precise prediction of what actually happens, even when you collide, uh, for example, two protons. The Higgs boson is predicted to be produced only uh, like uh, one over 10 billions. Billion. Billions, yeah. yes, of these collisions. And, um, so one in ten. Billion. Yes, one in ten billion. Is, is so, valuable. Yeah, it's what we are looking for. All the data that we record from one collision is about one megabyte, and we cannot write that much of twenty million collision per second on a disk. We just don't have the technology to do that, and it will require an enormous disk space. So, one very active and difficult part of the experiment is to try to decide in real time which of these collisions may be potentially interesting for what you're looking for or not. And we reduce them and write basically uh, two, three hundred of them each second. How long does take to so it takes for you to get the data from the experiments yeah. that are happening in Geneva? So this is a very amazing thing, and this is something that is only possible for the work of a lot of people. But usually data, uh, they are recorded, I send it's a huge amount of data. There are people checking that every day. I mean, while data is taken, uh, everything is working properly. So all of them, they need to uh, meet every day and decide what it was working, what was not, what had problems, and mark the data saying, okay, during this data, I had this problem. During this, I had this one. So that everyone who analyzes can say, oh, I need this component of the detector. So give me only the data which was working in which uh, that you collected while this piece was working. After that, it needs to be distributed worldwide to be analyzed. And uh, before doing that, uh, it's not like you collect it and you analyze it itself. You also need some, some kind of processing, pre-processing of this data. And all this process usually takes uh, uh, just a few days, really one week, I would say, I can run my analysis almost on data. Yeah, one thing that is maybe not, not obvious is why I need to process this data. And this goes a bit in how this 
huge detector that right now it's uh, a black box for you. I mean, I haven't explained anything about it, how it works. And I mentioned that it has many systems. Just to give you a feeling, uh, I can tell you that uh, the, the systems that are closer to the interaction are the one that um, basically when a particle passes through them, they basically try to disturb the particle the less possible, so they are very thin part of material, and uh, they basically just just try to say uh, to the electronic, yeah, the particle passed through this point. So what you have is kind of uh, a grid all around, several layers of grids, which will tell you a particle passed here, another here. Sometimes they fail, they don't tell you that it passed, sometimes they tell you that it passed even if nothing was going on for noise, of course. And so what you actually see when you record an event is uh, this a huge amount of grids with points and from that you need to figure out what does it mean I mean how many particles were there which trajectory did they they went through and this is a highly non-trivial task and this needs to be done and this and from there we can start and say okay if I see these kind of particles then it means that they originate from this other particle here and they have this energy, so I can I know that it's not this process, and you can do all these kind of infer things. So this needs to be done before the is analyzed, and usually, yeah. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX. This week we are talking to Simone Pagan-Grizo about the search for the Higgs boson, the theoretical particle of mass in the standard model of physics. These experiments are very huge collaboration of people worldwide. At CERN right now, the, each of these experiments, like the ATRAS experiment, is a collaboration of three thousands of people, which was needed to build the experiment, uh, to make it work, to still make it working right now, and to analyze what we see. So I'm I'm very interested in just the scope of the project and how how many people are working on it. For such a fundamental question, one thinks that if we have an answer, that could be potentially worthy of winning a Nobel Prize. So who actually gets the prize if... That's a very good question. I think that, of course, uh, a Nobel Prize, I think, is very much worth in this case. After uh, all these years of searches, all the theorists working on uh, building this theory uh, of this Higgs mechanism and this... In the end, the prediction of this particle are, of course, worth uh, a, a very good uh, price, and uh, Nobel Prize can be suited to that. And as well as that, I think all the experimental effort would be need uh, w- is definitely worth a, a very good price. So I like to think that uh, this price will be shared among all the people that worked along all these years, but of course it will happen that probably a representative uh, of those will actually take physically the price, but I'm sure that uh, it will happen, that it, it will be felt as shared among all the thousands of physicists working on this project. And what's it like for you as an individual scientist on the, a big team? How do you sort of carve out your own niche, and how is... You cannot uh, enforce a strict hierarchical structure, right? You basically have... Coordi- you can appoint coordinators which can try to focus uh, the, the work of many people. 
but every people is basically free to pursue his own research as he feels that is the better way to go. It's never a work that you do alone. It's something uh, that requires the work of several people. I worked uh, on a similar thing in Chicago during my PhD, so I acquired a lot of experience in that. And I try to use this experience now to, to improve things, to push harder uh, all the analysis technique and understanding of our data at LHC. So there is plenty of room in which every person is contributing. I personally work, um, like to work a lot on the analysis techniques that are used to analyze what we see and to distinguish known processes from processes that we are looking for. That is an extremely interesting field. Um, the reason for that is that we have a huge amount of information after this collision. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that these detectors are huge. Uh, the atlas detector itself is kind of 45 meters long and 25 meters high. So there are some huge uh, instrumentations. And uh, each of the, these detectors is made of various subsystems which are which have the uh, goal of measuring different processes of the non-particles that comes out from the interactions. And uh, being in uh, this is a huge amount of information. Okay, and it's not easy. Um, you don't know, you don't know exactly what happens, but you try to reconstruct from what you see what happened. And this is something uh, that I try to work a, a lot on, in, in really just analyzing what I see and try to. Uh, classify if you want the various collision and try to understand what happened and uh, this field uh, made a lot of progresses and and uh, it's using very very uh, advanced techniques and uh, it's interesting how uh, many concepts that were born in uh, other science fields like computer science are actually merging in what we are using right now one of the nicer example are what uh, are called neural networks that were born in computer science are used a lot for example uh, in uh, uh, vision for the for uh, uh, automation for uh, robotics uh, and uh, we actually can use them to uh, to process the whole information that we have and try to classify these events and to see how they look like we can use simulation of these events we have a lot of people working trying to simulate what we expect to see in our detector, which being such a huge piece of instrument is not easy. And uh, using this simulation, we can actually uh, make, uh, make new uh, tools like neural networks, which uh, try to see what happened really in our detector and to see if it is what we expect from a known process or from an X production. I have to say we're pretty close. We should be able to say something in a very short amount of time. Well, Simone, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention some of the science and technology events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. I'm joined for this calendar by Brad Swift. To preserve our planet, scientists tell us that we must reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from its current level of 392 parts per million to below 350 parts per million. 
the organization 350.org is building a global grassroots movement to solve the climate crisis. Moving Planet is a worldwide rally to demand solutions to the climate crisis. Moving Planet is a global day of action scheduled for Saturday, September 24, 2011. The San Francisco rally begins with a parade from Justin Herman Plaza, which is at the intersection of Market Street and the Embarcadero. The parade will head up Market Street to the Civic Center at 12.30 p.m. Once at the Civic Center, there will be speakers, music, food, workshops, and exhibits. For details on all the Saturday events, including the San Francisco rally, go to the website 350.org and click on Moving Planet. Berkeley Emeritus Professor Frank Shu will deliver a lecture entitled Nuclear Energy After Fukushima on Tuesday, September 27th at 6 p.m. at the Commonwealth Club's San Francisco office, located on the second floor of 595 Market Street. The media and public's reaction to the recent nuclear accident threatened to cripple the nuclear renaissance that is humanity's best hope for mitigating climate disruption. Shu will review how light water reactors and the once-through fuel cycle came to dominate the landscape for generating nuclear power today, and will assess options for the future. A standard ticket for this event is $20, but admission is $8 for members and $7 for students with a valid ID. Visit www.commonwealthclub.org for more information. What's right with Kansas? Learn how Kansas's climate and energy project is capitalizing on heartland values to change behavior and reduce carbon emissions. A panel of Nancy Jackson, Executive Director, Kansas Climate and Energy Project, and Marianne Fuller from the Lawrence Berkeley Labs Environmental Energy Technologies Division will present the Kansas Project. Plus, be the first to see LBL's video, Kansas, which shows how the Climate and Energy Project has become a Kansas mainstay. This will be Monday, October 3rd, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. This is a free event at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, 2025 Addison Street in Berkeley. The Exploratorium is hosting After Dark, an evening series for adults 18 and over that mixes science, art, and cocktails. Admission to the Exploratorium is included. Tickets are $15 or $12 for seniors, students, or persons with disabilities and are free for members. On Thursday, October 6th, from 6 to 10 p.m., this month's After Dark's theme is Again and Again. Explore the fascinating worlds of reminiscence and repetition, and then backwards skate through your own nostalgia on their temporary roller rink. UC Berkeley professor of psychology Art Shimamura will explain the mechanics of human memory. The website for this event is www.exploratorium.edu slash afterdark. And now for a couple recent science news events. Here is Brad Swift. Gamers have solved the structure of a retrovirus enzyme whose configuration had stumped scientists for more than a decade. The gamers achieved their discovery by playing Fold It, an online game that allows players to collaborate and compete in predicting the structure of protein molecules. This is the first instance that the researchers are aware of in which gamers solved a long-standing scientific problem. After scientists repeatedly failed to piece together the structure of a protein-cutting enzyme from an AIDS-like virus, they called in the Foldit players. The scientists challenged the gamers to produce an accurate model of the enzyme. The gamers did it in only three weeks. Foldit was created by computer scientists at the University of Washington Center for Game Science in collaboration with the Baker Lab, a biochemistry lab at the university. Figuring out the structure of proteins contributes to the research on the causes of 
and cures for cancer, Alzheimer's, immune deficiencies, and a host of other disorders, as well as work on biofuels. A paper describing the retrovirus enzyme structure was published September 18th in the journal Nature, Structural and Molecular Biology. The scientists and the gamers are listed as co-authors. And in news related to this week's interview, science reports that Israel has become an associate member of the European Physics Laboratory, CERN. They are the 21st member nation and the first new member since Bulgaria joined in 1999. This move is somewhat controversial, as some academics in the UK and South Africa wish to boycott collaboration due to Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. But this ends a two-year probationary membership, and Israel will eventually contribute 1 billion Swiss francs to the project a year. Israeli representative to the CERN Governing Council, Eliezer Rabinibichi, states that he hopes this will inspire other Arab nations to join the effort. music heard during the show was the track Demand Jeans de Vie from David Lostana's self-published folk and acoustic album. It is published under the Creative Commons Attribution License, version 3.0, and is available at www.gemendo.com. Editing and production assistance for the show by Brad Swift. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>